Welcome to On the Same Page, the Fuller's Bookshop Book Group Podcast. My name is Damon Young. And I'm Ruth Quabell. Today we are talking about... The Lying Life of Adults. By Elena Ferrante. So Damon, what kind of book would you say this is? Um, I mean, I sp- it's kind of a growing up story. Um, you know, you'd call it a coming of age story. Um you know, or a, a, a Bildungsroman, you know, where someone develops through the course of the story. Um, so it's it's that, but it's, it seems sort of flimsy to call it that mm. um, because it's talking about a whole lot of other stuff as well. What, um, but, yeah, sure, it's a coming-of-age story. Yep, uh, and it's a story of family trauma and dynamics. Yep, yeah, for sure. Um, yep. It's a, It's very much a novel of... Um, class in yeah. Italy and how class is, you know, relates to geography as well. It depends on where you live. You've got the, the high middle class, upper middle class suburbs and then the, the low working class suburbs, even if they're the same family. And what people give up for social mobility yeah. to, in order to climb. Yep. Um, and also language, um, and which presumably we'll get to this, but um, Ferrante makes a point of telling us when they're speaking Italian, you know, the national language, and when they're speaking a dialect um, with all that suggests about class um, and region and power and so on. So, And didn't you want to know what they were saying? Yeah, and this is why I, maybe we can get to this later when we're talking about her language, but it is we have to be very aware that we're reading a translation here because while... Um, from what I've read, the translation is very good. Uh, it's very much a translation, and we're obviously missing a lot of cues um, that, that not only because we're speaking English, but because in Australia, I really don't think we have any equivalent for English speakers of dialects. You know, we might have the Adelaide accent, um, but there there really isn't a dialect in the same way. So we're kind of missing that point of reference at a visceral level. But anyway. Some of it does come through, though. And I just wanted to give an example, even if we come back to this later. It's from page 115. And it's where the main character's aunt has said to her, um, she says, screw you then, she muttered. The nasty things you don't say to anyone become dogs that eat your head at night while you're sleeping. <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> so I good. wanted more of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And but but I assume that's the kind of things that the people were saying to each other. That's very distinct. Yeah. Local ways of engaging. And that just stuck with me. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that, that all adds to the picture of of the lying life of adults being very much a translated book. And it's, you know, I'm not saying that's its category or its genre, but it is, you know, it is obviously from another culture um, with its own subcultures. And we have to accept that we're not going to understand that as fully as someone from, you know, Naples, for example. Um Something I think we really can identify with is obviously the coming of age stuff, but also the fact that it's kind of a novel of altered states. And I've noticed that I've only read one other Ferrante, and that is um, Days of Abandonment, um, which, which sort of follows 
the life of this woman after she um, breaks with her husband. And Ferrante is very good at getting at what happens when your sense of reality breaks slightly or when you're um, you experience a crisis where things you realize things are not what they seem and the whole world seems to take on an eerie and strange aspect. Now that's um, really intense in days of abandonment, but it runs throughout this and that's partly because it's a story about teenagers mm. and I think it's really fascinating as an adult to be reminded of what it's like to be a teenager and to have this altered sense of reality where you really do not see the world in the same way as the adults around you um, but also the way in which um, uh, Janina um, Giovanna experiences these crises of disillusionment where you know, she, she has this world and then that world breaks. And so she finds another one and then that world breaks. And she finds another one and that world breaks. Each one of these worlds has a, a person as its figurehead. Um, and I think Ferrante handles that really well. Just this constant sense of unreality where the world is normal. And then you're like, oh my, what? What is going on here? This is monstrous. So you find a new normality and you settle into that. And then that goes as well. And so this this poor girl is constantly experiencing a kind of warped existence. And I, I mm, but but sure, it, but, yeah. it, but it's not handled like it's a pulp thriller or it's not sentimental. I, I didn't find it um, overblown. It's all very ordinary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I think what's I think I agree with you, and. It's interesting that she's not a passive player in that kind of um, that world that keeps shattering. She keeps trying to forge sort of new worlds with new um, new figureheads, or, yeah. or and the intensity of emotion that's driving yes. as she strives to make sense of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like that about this protagonist that she's not merely a passive observer. She, you know, for all her need to have a hero of some sort to help guide her, um, you know, so for example, when she's completely in love with Roberto, she is absolutely not passively just following Roberto. She's like, well, actually, the Bible sucks. It's full of ridiculous stories and I don't believe any of it anyway. It's pathetic. I really like that about her. Mm. Um, she, she's not just um, allowing herself to be led Um and in fact, there is something admirable in the idea that it's actually okay to have role models. Um, they just have to be the right role models and you have to know how to use them well. Because you can't just copy them. You can't just ape them. You need to use them to transform yourself. Um, and that's maybe something we can get back to. But she, she essentially uses these lies, the protagonist, I mean, to make herself into something new, to, to encounter the truth in new ways. I like that. That seems a good point to discuss the characters uh, in this because it really is a book about character. Obviously, the, the social settings, the geography is very important. Um, this, the sense of this being a very particular Italy or Italy's. Um, but, you know, like Jane Austen's work or Henry James's work, um, uh, this is about characters and how those characters interact and what these interactions do for and to each other 
Um, yeah, it's a really quite a small network. Yes. Of connected people. So, what what did you think of the characters? I mean, starting with the 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 big ones, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So we've got Giovanna, who's our central character, who's yep. the teen, who idolizes her parents, um, who are Andrea and Nella. Yep. Uh, who seems so perfect to start with, and initially we have Vittoria, the aunt, who is the everything that is wrong and the great fearful spectre. Um, then we have her parents' friends, uh, Mariano and Costanza, and their daughters, Ida and Angela. And then we have the figure of Enzo, her aunt Victoria's lover, who's long dead, and his wife, Margarita, and her three children, Tonino, Corrada, and Juliana, and the love interests, Roberto and Rosario. Yeah. That's just to sketch out all the characters, and that's pretty much everyone in the book, aside from a priest. Yeah. It's it's really quite a small group. Yep. Um, so to, what, what did you think about... I mean, you know, the, the parents are... The, the sort of the, the the two looming characters from the beginning and it's it's the rupturing of that facade mm. that begins um Giovanna's you know journey yeah what, what what did you think of them as as they're drawn yeah i i think it's it seems so real it yeah. seems so vivid that journey from kind of childhood idol idolizing of parents who know exactly what they're doing mm. through to these completely flawed and they're seen in that way that teenagers often do see their parents in a kind of really harsh, mm. unforgiving light. Yes. Yeah. What, um, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And it's uh, what I like is the way she's captured um, that switch from almost proud acceptance. These are my parents. They're, they're beautiful. They're stylish. They're well-spoken. They're intelligent. Mm. All of which are true. The switch from that to they disgust me. Mm. It's disgust. It's not just kind of moral disapproval. It's a visceral sense that, you know, the, these people turn my stomach and she she has to respond with an equally visceral response of rebellion. You know, she she debases herself it, it almost to kind of um, cope with the way in which her parents are now debased, and by implication, her she's their daughter, and she's the daughter of these disgusting, you know, upper middle class hypocrites. Um, and it, you know, it, it's. As I said before, it is a kind of altered reality, but it's a very familiar teenage altered reality. Mm. I don't know if she debases herself as a rebellion against them. That's, I think that's sort of an open question. Oh, sure. Then when why else might she do it? I'm, you know, I, I do think it's not that simple, but what else is she looking for? I, I think it's just the fact that she's looking and trying to find where she is. What other characters stood out for you as really significant? I mean, obviously, um, Vittoria, uh, her aunt. I mean, she she really does seem like a breath of fresh air next to her parents. You know, they are they are uptight. They speak this crisp official Italian. 
Um, she's exotic she, compared to them. Yeah, she's exotic. She speaks this rough um, dialect. She's constantly expressing her feelings in the most violent terms. She's she's literally speaking about doing violence to people. So she she seems um, like an honest, sort of faithful, true, authentic person. And mm. you know, and and that, that all matches with a whole lot of tropes, like the idea that the 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 rougher and more vulgar and more crude you are, the more authentic you are. As if you couldn't also be a sort of deceitful, pathological, needy, um, cruel, brutal human being. No, 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 you're real. Um, so I, I think she, she's a fantastically drawn character. And while, again, I don't know Italy, um, but I do know people like this who, whose kind of crudity is mistaken for honesty um, and for good intentions because you know they couldn't be deceitful they couldn't be manipulative they couldn't be needy because they're just so in your face you know you know mm. what they are and they are what they are but of course as we go on we realize well no actually she's she's deluded she's incredibly manipulating she's dangerous um to those around her because she really doesn't seem to think of the consequences of what she's doing um and she's a kind of a capital r romantic she, she has this completely idealized notion of her love with Enzo um and she kind of fetishizes the sex that they had as if that is enough to justify the rest of it for example you know Enzo was a cop who stole from his own mother-in-law I mean it's just mm. it's disgusting it's so petty and selfish that's I think that's a wonderful way of showing who and what Vittoria is and again, she's not wholly bad. She has a lot of good elements. But like like um, Giovanna's parents, it's she's there in part to, to, you know, we see her through Giovanna's eyes and we see her changing as Giovanna realises what she's really like. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's another journey from sort of idol to watching their idol's problems emerge and their failings and yes. it being really obvious to her. And I, again, it's the sense that both you and I have talked about of realising that adults are just holding it together, if they're holding it together at all. Mm. Like, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, everything's held together with blue tack and sticks and it's just um, Giovanna seeing that same process in a whole load of different characters. Mm. Um and her parents letting her make those connections because, firstly, Victoria is family, but secondly, because they can't protect their child from the world full of people with different characters. No, but they are... I mean, And this is, I think, a, a genuine moral virtue on their behalf that they are... They do give her some freedom... To, to you know because Victoria would not oh uh, yeah she's incredibly you can see that. yeah she's so controlling and needy so what seems you know she's oh, she's so liberated she's so progressive from these hypocritical upper middle class mores but you know she really is manipulative and controlling and violent in a way that her parents are not yeah um, i'm just going to read a passage um about Victoria uh, page 74 75 
You say yes, but you know nothing. They fuck. You know that word? I was startled. Yes. Enzo and I did that thing 11 times together. Then he went back to his wife and I never did it again with anyone. Enzo kissed me and touched me and licked me all over and I touched him and kissed him all the way up to his toes and caressed him and licked and sucked. Then he put his dick inside me and held my ass with both hands, one here and one there, and he thrust it into me with such force that it made me cry out. If you in all your life don't do this thing as I did it with the passion I did it with, the love I did it with, and I don't mean 11 times, but at least once, it's pointless to live. Tell your father. Vittoria said that if I don't fuck the way she fucked with Enzo, it's pointless for me to live. You have to say it just like that. He thinks he deprived me of something with what he did to me, but he didn't deprive me of anything. I've had everything. I have everything. It's your father who has nothing. Those words of hers I've never been able to erase. They came unexpectedly. I would never have imagined she would say could say them to me. Of course, she treated me like an adult, and I was glad of that from the start, that she abandoned the proper way to speak to a girl of 13. But still, what she said was so surprising, I was tempted to put my hands over my ears. I didn't. I didn't move. I couldn't even avoid her gaze, which sought my face, the effect of the words. It was, in short, physically, yes, physically overwhelming, her speaking to me like that, there in the cemetery, in front of the portrait of Enzo, without worrying that someone might hear her. Oh, what a story. Oh, to learn to speak like that outside of every convention of my house. I mean, I think this is like a, a pivotal scene in the book um, because it, it really does introduce how novel, how rebellious and thrilling Vittoria is as a character to Giovanna. You know, the fact that she's willing to say these things that couldn't possibly be said in a polite upper middle class household, um, but even in that scene, and then even more as the as the book goes on, you see how desperate her aunt is, how needy, how she clings to this image of kind of raw, carnal, passionate energy as the justification for her whole life. Because if she doesn't have that, she's got nothing, um, and that's it's kind of she really is this this. Um, you know, blunt, straightforward, powerful character. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but she's also this broken, deluded woman who, who sort of clings to a, sh a shred of happiness because, you know, she doesn't value the, the rest of it. Is that how you saw it? Yeah. Hearing that section again, though, it really brings home to me how much she's saying her experience is the right the only experience and her experience is so limited and she doesn't want to know anything else about the world or love or lust she just wants her experience to be the defining quality and you can see that controlling spread to Enzo's children the role she plays in their life it's it's really quite horrible yeah, it is. I agree. And it's it's funny that, yeah, she has this, like, by the end of the novel, Giovanna has more sexual experience than her aunt. Mm, um, as, as shocking as that is and, and as, you know, how um, kind of horrific the circumstances are, this very young girl with much older men, um, her, her aunt... For all her, you know, much vaunted passion and romantic sensibility, 
um, has been with one man and that's it. And, yeah. and yet she wants to take that experience and use it to justify her control over everyone else. And it's only when the people under her control have more life experience that they can kind of reject her. So I'm thinking of Enzo's children. You know, they're in a position to... They, they struggle, but they can reject her once they've got more experience of the world. Yes. And yeah. the same with Giovanna. That's how she can choose to almost do the complete opposite of what her aunt says uh, in sleeping with or having sex with Rosario. Yes. And, and ditching the bracelet. Yes. So she's, she's you know, it's, it's not good sex with Rosario. No. But it's the sex that she chooses on her terms that is not romantic, that's perfunctory because she thinks it needs to happen. Now, she may be wrong because she's just a kid. It, maybe it doesn't need to happen. Maybe it doesn't need to happen then. But she makes her choice um, in a way that's very different to the choices that Vittoria made. Mm. And that, you know, again, it's a model of growing up and part of growing up is learning that you've got to make your choices, but they should be your choices. Yeah, for sure. Now, there are other characters, obviously, who, who play not necessarily a huge role, but a very... A, a very significant and distinct role, and one of those is Mariano, uh, the her father's friend, her, or the friend of her parents, um, and he's sort of part of that genteel middle class arguing about Marxism life that they have, where you know everyone plays their parts and they have good times together, um, you know, you know, in their in their middle class educated way, but then they're sort of crack in that vision appears as keeps happening through the book um did you want to yeah i mean he plays the role that i think most women know from their teen years of the perv the guy who takes a look yeah and and that's an important role i think in this book because it's again showing that adults are not good or wholly motivated by you know care and think that's the sort of thing that she needs to learn yes and, and so she's she's learning two things there she's learning about men and their um their gaze yeah um but she's also learning about herself that is she is now the sort of being who is the object of that gaze and she wasn't before and it's mm. kind of been foisted upon her because she doesn't really have much agony about her or, or reflections on her changing body it's only through others seeing her that she seems to even yes have that recognition yeah yeah it's curious Which, in the, that it's written like that well i you know i'm sure that is the experience of some women that yeah. they're kind of um it's through others that they have to learn about what's happening to them i mean you know of course they would notice but it's it's the significance of what's happening that they learn from others that the weight the burden yeah the... exactly exactly yeah, yeah. the the sense of being an other for someone that they're going to to leer at um mm. it's i and i think it's you know it's very briefly done um but, yeah, it's, but it sticks doesn't it does it? yeah it does yeah. uh and the other thing that sticks in that family is the competition that sort of puberty seems to bring on between her and Mariano's daughters, specifically Angela. Angela, yeah. Well, I think 
what I find fascinating about that is, I mean, this is partly a novel of lies and deceit. You know, she, she, she's constantly disillusioned with various people and she, she learns about their delusions but also about their straightforward lies. Mm. Um, and one thing she does with Angela is she essentially practices lying with her. You know, she tells Angela and Ida all kinds of nonsense falsehoods about herself and about Vittoria and about, you know, what she she has done or will do with boys. And the interesting thing is she really is trying on selves. Yeah. And again, the whole novel's about that. It's about her trying on different selves. And just as with Roberto, she her grades get better, she becomes more polite, she becomes more patient. Um the thing and, and yeah, sure, her motivations is that she's got the hots for this guy. But you know, we all need these ideals to look up to and in so doing cultivate ourselves. And I, I think another theme throughout this is sometimes what starts as kind of lies ends up being what you are. I mean it's it's a form of pretense, but you you become that. You know, she wasn't really that interested in the Bible. She 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 was doing that for him, but the end result was that she genuinely was acting more intelligently, more curiously, more studiously. Mm, and she found that others were valuing her for that. So Roberto's girlfriend, Juliana, Juliana, recognized in her that there was there were these um, like embodied traits, her way of speaking, her way of expressing yes. herself that. She just didn't have no, and that she doesn't do this actively, but she sort of realizes that she has something there, yeah, and she has it because it's just a part of her family. Exactly, yeah. I think that's really beautifully done because it shows how enmeshed all these things are. Mm. You know, she really is an upper middle class girl whose parents are educated. She grew up with books. She grew up with intellectual conversations. That's part of her. But she takes it for granted, whereas someone like Juliana, who grows up in a, you know, essentially a lower middle class or working class family, no books in the house, this kind of stuff's not valued. She may be elegant, she may be beautiful, but she can't have that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, Roberto is the figure who brings out those themes. You know, he doesn't really need to do anything. He's just there bringing out those themes. And again, it kind of brings home how... Um, Ferrante places all these characters together and then lets them influence each other. Mm. On Giuliano, you said that she wouldn't have, she didn't have these things as a matter of upbringing. And she's almost faced with the same choice. She will have to make that break with her family if she wants that life. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, and so it's. Uh, there's that choice. Do they stay in um, Naples or do they go to Milan? Because, mm. um, you know, if they stay in this family, their course is laid out. If they, if, they, if they move, there are new possibilities. And at the end of the novel, there's a, this, a, a similar kind of theme is at work for Giovanna, who is, who's, you know, goes off with her friend... And they promise to be adults like no adults have been adults before, which is a, a very teenage thing to think and do. Um, but it, it is, you know, she cannot, she can't stay where she is. Yeah. And she can't, she can't repeat her parents' lives and she doesn't want to. And it's, it's sort of the liberation of the novel is that 
Yes. She gets to choose. And it's not neat. It's not... No. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the end is pretty sordid with her and Rosario, but it's as happy an ending as you're going to get from Ferrante. Well, maybe I'll learn that. <laughs> <laughs> Just talking briefly about Roberto, um, <laughs> the, the beautiful uh, black-bearded, blue-eyed... Um, intellectual who who is kind of her final role model for want of a, a better term what what did you think about that episode with you know where she is the pretense of her taking going to get the bracelet but she's going back f- for him you know w- what happened there and what did you think about it oh, roberto is sort of a nothing character he just seems like he must be very, very beautiful, very charismatic. Mm. But, yeah, she goes back and she's built up this idea of how important he is to her. And he's like, oh, yeah, you can sleep in with me or not. I mean, it's just like <laughs> like what kind of what greater wound to her than, than that? He just, he takes her ideas seriously, but he's like, oh, yeah, sure. So it's, it's kind of, he, he, is he taking her interest for granted? He's got her wrapped around his little finger and, you know, he just throws out the suggestion and she'll come running. Is that is that what's happening? Maybe. I mean, it just seems like he's sort of indifferent to what she's built up as being huge. It, mm. I mean, it would be huge. It would be a break with her aunt. It would yep. be a break with that whole side of the family. Mm. And up till that point, she could do exactly what her aunt has suggested but, you know, it's it's not all that. Nothing's being really offered to her there. And right. And she's, she's clear-eyed enough to see that, you know, it's nothing. And so that's, that's her kind of final disillusionment, isn't it? Because he really is intelligent. He really is beautiful. But he's kind of this conceited, smug... Um, yeah, he's obviously been sleeping with women. Giuliano was, obvious, was right... That, you know, he wouldn't have casually suggested sleeping with a 15-year-old unless he'd done this kind of thing before. Um, oh, God, can you hear that? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, <laughs> this is... And, and it's, all, it's all portrayed as if, well, you know, of course this thing's kind of thing's going to happen. And, of course, yeah. it does happen. But it's, it's how banal he is as a lover figure. And she's, you know, again, she's like... Okay, yet another adult who turns out to be way less than I thought. And it's after that that she's just like, okay, I'll sleep with Rosario. Yeah, I be- think because if that's, if that's what's on, if that's the way the world is, she doesn't have to put as much into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really is the non-entity he looks like. Mm. You know, Roberto promises so much and delivers nothing Rosario just is, a, you know, daddy's rich boy in a nice car who um, isn't very attractive, isn't very bright, doesn't really have any redeeming qualities, um, but he's not dangerous. Yeah. So, so she goes for what's not dangerous. She can, you know, he, he will do what she says. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a strange way that she and Ida treat their virginity in this book but it's also a recognizable teenage 
girl trait. Exactly. That it's something to be discarded. Yeah, got to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, it's a duty. So she follows her duty. Whereas, you know, the, the Vittoria's vision is of this romantic quest, you know, for, for love. Um, whereas, you know, I, I think the only thing that's uh, an illusion here is, the, is that illusion that You've just got to get it done. Well, you don't. You could wait. You could you could try yeah. to find someone better. But if you look at the circle of men around her, there is no one better. Yeah, I think that also goes back to the very start of the book where she's idealised her parents' relationship as them getting together and being smart and funny and in love. And that's sort of like the story of that that's come undone as well as yes. we progress through the story. Yes. Which is, I mean, and again, she doesn't have the whole picture of that either. They may well have been very much in love. They may have cared for each other deeply. Um, although her father gave that bracelet to another woman very early. So, yeah, maybe it was poisoned from day one. I thought maybe we could talk briefly about the language of... The book, you know, the, the, the prose, but also the languages involved. How, how did you find reading this book? I found it a really straightforward read. Um, it's very clear. Um, the language didn't stand out for me apart from some of the phrases that Victoria used. You know, they seemed so... Um, like the one I mentioned earlier about the the wolf or the dog biting your ear. It, <laughs> yeah. You know, that that seems so remote from anything that I've come across. Mm. Um, but other than that, not much stood out for me. What about for you? Yeah, I'm the same, but I, I kind of think it's deceptively plain because in Italian, we would notice the shifts of language. We would notice the different voices and registers and moods um whereas in english as we were saying earlier we we can't tell the difference between high italian um formal italian and um you know the neapolitan dialect um and it's not it's at least for me speaking only for myself it's it's not only that we don't understand italian or the dialect it's that we don't have dialects, um, at least not, you know, I, I have no experience of dialects of English. And so I can absolutely hear regional and class differences in the way people speak, like we all can. Um, you know, a lot of comedy wouldn't work unless we could tell the difference immediately between the stuck-up toff and the, the earthy working-class person. Um, but I... I know I'm missing something in this novel because I don't understand those changes of of language. But in terms of what it was like to read, very straightforward. Mm. Um, and really, at some points, hits on things that I haven't heard since I was a teenager. So, for instance, the, there's a, a boy that she's at high school with, Silvestro, I think, and he makes that horrible comment that she'd be great um if you just have to cover her head with you a just pillow. put a pillow over her head yeah yeah and i can remember hearing that kind of thing said by boys at high school maybe uni even but i haven't heard that since then yeah i yeah i absolutely heard that at high school yeah and just wow 
Yeah. Yeah, it was just that ear for this is something that's so acute that you would hear at that point in time and so horribly cutting. Yeah, I remember a guy in year nine saying something like, oh, you don't look at the mantelpiece when you're stoking the fire. And it's just... I I remember even then, at age 15, just thinking... I I didn't really know... I didn't really understand how to categorise it, but I I just... I felt icky hearing it, just like, that's... Um, And yeah, I, I wish... I understood more of that in the original language. I, I wouldn't, you know, it's not like the book has been, you know, limp or flat for me at all. It hasn't, but I just know I'm missing out. That's all. There's a mood of this book that is really well conveyed, I think, on page 241. And I'll just read this from the first paragraph. The time of my adolescence is slow made up of large grey blocks and sudden lumps of colour, green or red or purple. The blocks don't have hours, days, months, years, and the seasons are indefinite. It's hot or cold, rainy or sunny. Even the bulges don't have a definite time. The colour counts more than any date. The hue itself, moreover, that certain emotions take on is of unimportant duration. The one who is writing knows. As soon as you look for words, the slowness becomes a whirlwind and the colours get mixed together like the colours of different fruits in a blender. Not only does time past become an empty formula, but also one afternoon, one morning, one evening become merely markers of convenience. All I can say is that I really did manage to make up the lost year and without a great effort. I had a good memory, I realised, and learned from books more than from school. Even if I read absent-mindedly, I remembered everything. Can you tell us a bit more about why you chose that passage? Well, I think it's a good example of the language when she decides to consolidate what she's doing. And I think it's also a good sense of the impressionistic way in which uh, teenage years are experienced or remembered. That, you know that it's it's not very precise it's it's really things seem to take this amount of time or that amount of time but not have any thing beyond a kind of quality of mood and the moods are so strong in the teens right okay which actually this is something I'd forgotten I wanted to talk about you've just reminded me that you know, we were talking about the theme of lies and deceits and delusions. Um, but as a narrator, we very much, we're seeing these people and these events through her quite obviously flawed perception of things. Mm. So even though there's an atmosphere of kind of brutal honesty in, in her discussion, you know, this is a woman writing later about her adolescence, um, She's just told us that she's not entirely sure how things worked and how they happened. And so there's another layer of possible illusion or delusion in this story. You know, this this yeah. is not a kind of uh, archival recording of what exactly happened. It's a novel, um, which is a form of artifice, which is 
you know, telling us one version of what perhaps happened. Yeah, and she's putting, you know, it starts kind of as a mystery, really, about, you know, what happened. Why does she look like this this much-disliked sister? And she puts the the bits together and she knows some certainties about the bracelet and where it came from and when it was given that exposes a whole lot of lies in the family. But you don't have necessarily the motivations. We don't know what Enzo was thinking. Mm. I mean, we can infer that he's probably not a great bloke and he probably did do all the things that he was accused of, but we can't know for certain what was going on. Yeah. And so there's kind of layers upon layers of uncertainty there. Mm. Um, there's her... There's her certain world is cracked and then there's the uncertainty of all the various adults and some kids around her and then there's her own uncertainty about what actually happened and how it happened and, and what everyone maybe thought and felt. So mm. it's, it's, it's quite powerful because it not only is it telling you a story about what it is to be a teenager, it seems to me to be also telling you a story about what it is to write and read a novel. And she says... She often understands things through novels. She, she re, you know, she understands the world through reading. But this novel is itself saying, well, yeah, but novels aren't exactly always honest either. So it's, you know, there are levels here. Mm. This is not a novel that has a simple resolution. It doesn't really have any resolution. It's, it's just that she has lived through this teenage experience and... You know, she's, they're going to go and be adults like another, no one else has been before. But you get the sense that this is really, um, there's no determined outcome to their life. It's more like life. How comfortable did you feel with that in this novel? Yeah, I, I was really comfortable with it. I mean, as I said, it's almost a happy ending. I mean, it's it's it's, but it's not. not neat. It's not. I know it's not neat, but it's a lot better than it could have been. And she has matured, and these are all good things. Um, but yeah, there's 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 no sense that any of this stuff is clear cut or finalized. I mean, it doesn't. You know, things don't even settle when we die. Mm. You look at Enzo, who who his his very particular life is transformed into an idea, into this consoling idea by Vittoria. So, you know, even even when we're finished, even when we're done with life, life hasn't done with us. You know, we, we can still be distorted or reinterpreted or whatever. Um, there's always this ambiguity. Although there is some resolution there that because Vittoria is moving away, his sons are going to take down the photo in the kitchen. They they they're removing him from his yes from his the position from the she's... pedestal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But yeah, look the 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 whole despite being a very powerful novel, a novel that leaves really strong impressions. Um, it's not a novel that gives you simple resolutions, simple answers, simple interpretations. You know, it's it's a novel a novel of. Um, multiplicities for for want of a less wanky word. Um, yeah, it reminded me of two things, how hard it can be to be a teenager, how yeah. difficult and how difficult it can be to live in a family. 
<laughs> as if you need reminding. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's, it's, um, I think as a novel, it's very accomplished. You know, if this was someone's first novel, you would be seriously impressed, but we know it's not. But I also think it's, it's a good book to read, to be reminded of what it is to, to live, to be a teenager, to be in a family, to cope with each other, to try to be kind rather than cruel, to be understanding if you can and, you know, um, and if you can't, then at least be tolerant. Um, you know, in that sense, it's a very moral book because it gazes at these people quite closely and shows you their moral failings, all of them, and also shows what it is to survive those as a kid and to, you know, cultivate your own moral failings. Whee! <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I was very comfortable with with its lack of a neat resolution. Um, and in fact, I would have been disappointed had had it been simple. Yeah, I think I would have too. I, I desperately wanted it to resolve, but I don't think this book should have resolved. I agree. And I, I think it's the mark of a good author is that don't, they don't necessarily give you what you want. <laughs> you know, they they give you something more realistic, more more true for want of a better word um yeah for for that um that said i do think it gave us that she takes off this this cursed bracelet and treats it just what it as what it is she just leaves it there yes and and i think that that's quite a turning point so yeah in fact that's that is one thing the bracelet in this novel has a similar function to the hot chocolate in the eighth life yeah um you know it's a talisman of 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 doom um yeah exactly and loss and grief um and similarly it takes a child at the end to say to treat it with indifference and to kind of render its seemingly magical power inert but i found the treatment of the bracelet in this novel more plausible and more persuasive than the hot chocolate in the eighth life. Yeah, I think it's partly because, you know, a teenager losing jewelry or or discarding jewelry seems in character. Totally. To to go, I mustn't lose this thing. It's so important to yep. X or Y. Yes. But losing it or discarding it makes so much sense. I agree. It was the perfect kind of device for that world. Mm. I think that about kind of wraps up my sense of this book. What about for you? Yeah, I've appreciated the opportunity to read uh, my first Ferrante and I'd be really interested to hear what people think who've read a lot of her works. Where, how does this stand in relation to them? Is it a good um, indicator of what the rest of her works are like in terms of quality and themes? That yeah. kind of thing. It'd be really good to... If you can, if you feel like sharing that, do feel free to send them to Ellen at Fuller's. Yeah, or just if you have, as always, if you have any impressions, ideas, criticisms of the book, please do send them along to Ellen. Um, we, we we have really appreciated having those in the these pandemic podcasts. Um, it, it makes the reading experience a lot richer. So yeah, please please do send them along if you have them. Um, Ruth, what have you been reading? 
Well, other than the Ferrante, I've been reading two books, two short books. One is a fairly new one by the Australian author Carol Lefebvre. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing that right. And I'm reading Murmurations, which is a collection of interlinked short stories. And it's, oh, it's amazing. It's really good. I'm, I'm really impressed with it. Um, it it's... It starts with a mystery, or rather there's a mystery about freedom at the heart of the collection. Uh, the other thing I'm reading is a Georges Perec, uh, very strange kind of fictional essay called The Art and Craft of Approaching Your Head of Department to Submit a Request for a Raise, which is a lot of fun. What about you, Damon? Um... So the most recent thing I've been reading is James Clavell's Shogun, um, <laughs> which was the bestseller of all bestsellers, just ridiculous, ridiculously best-selling novel in, I think, about 1975, um, perhaps a bit later. And it's the story of a, a, a Western, an Englishman who works with um, European uh, traders uh, he ends up in Japan in the 17th century, and it's a it's a story of his, um, well, his learning to be civilized, essentially learning to be something like a Japanese person, uh, but also the story of the modernization of Japan, um, and also later on Japan's refusal of western influence you know which which lasted him you know over 200 years so it's it's partly a history lesson and it is no doubt responsible for generations of people um being interested in japanese culture um of course uh, historians anthropologists sociologists uh, will say there are a lot of problems in the book um in terms of accuracy but it's a rollicking read and sometimes the gist is right. And look, I have to read it because of research I'm doing on swords. And this is a swordy book. So, you know, I'm reading it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we've been up to. Um, as always, if you have any book recommendations that are not part of our reading group, um, please also send them along to Ellen. Um, that is it for us. We will be back hopefully next year. Uh quite possibly in person depending how it all goes we would we would like to get back to um meeting in person um but we yeah we need to wait for the go-ahead so until then um it's been fun yeah thanks for joining us for this distance here cheers folks <laughs>